Bethany. Let's take our Bibles this evening. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 6. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6. As we were this morning, we're going to finish looking at uh, the ark this evening, Noah's ark. So Genesis chapter 6. And let's read verse 14 as we begin this evening. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14. It says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. And the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die. Let's open with a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, as we come around your word this evening, we pray that you bless our time, that Lord, you'd have your hand upon us, that you would uh, speak to each of our hearts this evening. May we be blessed and refreshed through your word. May we uh, see you, Lord, and your glory, your wisdom, your power. Lord, I pray that you would empower me now this evening, that it would be your words, it would be your thoughts, and that, Lord, you would uh, receive all the glory, honor, and praise. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> now, of course, this morning we began to look at the, this section here where uh, Noah is given uh, the instructions by God to build uh, the ark. And we talked about the fact that uh, judgment is now fast approaching. You know, we talked about how that this judgment was going to take the form of a worldwide flood. Okay, and we looked at that Hebrew word, mabul, and how it's talking about a unique event. And so it's a worldwide flood. There's nowhere to run to. There's no higher ground to escape to. Uh, this is an event that's going to destroy all flesh. And as we saw, God in his grace provides the way of salvation. Uh, God in his grace provides a way to escape that judgment to come. And of course, that way of salvation, the way of escape, is indeed the ark. And so this morning we focused on the fact that the ark was sufficient in size for the purpose God intended. You know, the plans that God gave to Noah ensured that the ark was more than sufficient to save all who would enter in. And indeed to save you know, Noah and his family, uh, those eight souls, but also to save all the animals, the birds, the land animals who would enter in as well, and then also to have room for all the food supplies. And so the ark was of sufficient size. And we concluded this morning by relating that to Christ and talking about how Christ is sufficient for all. You know, Christ's death there on the cross is sufficient to save all who will believe. And this evening now we want to continue uh, looking at the ark and, and looking at how it is a picture of Christ. And there's three more things I want us to consider this evening. And the first of those is that it's a seaworthy vessel. It was a seaworthy vessel. Just read there again with me verse 15. It says, And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits the breadth of it 50 cubits, and the height of it 30 cubits. Now in verse 15, of course, we're given the dimensions of 
the ark and we focused on this in detail this morning. You know, and we talked about how a conservative approach to the length of a cubit, taking the smallest uh, measure of a cubit, would mean that the ark was 133.5 metres long, 22.5 metres wide and 13.4 metres tall. And basically these dimensions given to us here in verse 15, they speak of a rectangular box, don't they? Okay, if we just take these literal dimensions here, we have a very long rectangular shape. Now we can't be sure of the exact shape that the ark takes once Noah has constructed them. I mean, the Bible only gives us the dimensions. It doesn't give us you know, the shaping of it. You know, was it you know, did it have a hull uh, shape at the front? You know, it just you know, curve in? or We don't know. We're not told in the word of God. Now, Tim Lovett from Answers in Genesis, he writes this. He says, while the Bible gives us essential details on many things, including the size and proportions of Noah's Ark, it does not necessarily specify the precise shape of this vessel. So how should we illustrate what the Ark looked like? The two main options include a default rectangular shape, reflecting the lack of specific detail, and a more fleshed-out design that incorporates principles of ship design from a maritime, sorry, from maritime science while remaining consistent with the Bible's size and proportions. So the point is, we can't be sure exactly what it looked like. And that's why, you know, when you see drawings, they vary, don't they? You know, you see some that it is literally just a box shape, and then you see others where it's a bit more curved. And the truth is, we don't know exactly. All we are given is the length, the breadth, and the height of this vessel. And so while we can't be sure of the exact shape that the ark took, we can be sure of the dimensions. Okay? They're given to us clearly in the Word of God, the proportions of this this vessel, this ark. And what's amazing when we look at the proportions here is that they are basically the exact, exactly the same as a modern cargo ship. Okay, you know the cargo ships that we're talking about. You know, you go down the ship and you see them on the, the horizon. Sorry, you go down the beach there, you see them on the horizon. You see those cargo, cargo vessels. You know, we know what we're talking about, those long rectangular vessels. And the ark is basically the same proportions. And so basically what we have is the very first cargo ship. That's what we have here. That very first cargo ship and its proportions were perfect for this purpose. In fact, the dimensions of the ark made it an extremely seaworthy vessel. Okay? It's, it's extremely seaworthy. When they look at the proportions and they do modeling of it, it is seaworthy, extremely seaworthy. Now concerning this, Morris writes this, he says... It can be shown uh, hydrodynamically that a gigantic box of such dimensions would be exceedingly stable, almost impossible to capsize, even in sea of gigantic waves. The arc could be tilted through any angle up to just short of 90 degrees and would immediately thereafter right itself again. And furthermore, it would tend to align itself parallel with the direction of major wave advance and thus be subject to minimal pitching most of the time. It's incredible, isn't it? The design of the arc is perfect so that even in high seas, basically 90 degrees and then it would right itself. It's almost virtually impossible to capsize this vessel. It speaks of the design, the wisdom of our God, doesn't it? And even secular scientists have to agree that the dimensions given in the Word of God 
make it perfectly proportioned. And I thought that was amazing this week. Secular scientists have actually looked at it, done a study on it, and proven God's word to be true with the dimensions given. In 1993, Noah's Ark was the focus of a scientific study led by Dr. Sion Hong. Okay, and he conducted this at the World Class Ship Research Center in South Korea called CRISO. It still exists today. And Dr. Hong and his team, what they did was they took 12 hulls of different proportions, okay, so different lengths, different heights, widths, 12 hulls of different proportions to discover which design was most practical. And their research showed that no hull shape was found to significantly outperform that of the ark. No hull shape outperformed that of the dimensions given for the ark in the word of God. In fact, the ark's proportions mean that it is perfectly balanced. Perfectly balanced. That balance is easily lost, you know, if you change the proportions in any way, either it becomes unstable or it's prone to fracture or it becomes dangerously uncomfortable. Changing any of those dimensions, any of those proportions. It's perfectly proportioned. Now, in the way that they had it in their study when I looked at it this week, they had a triangle, basically comfort, they had stability and they had um, strength and the ark was right in the middle of that triangle. It's perfect for a vessel being seaworthy. And Tim Lovett from Anson Genesis, he writes this, he says, Dr. Hong's research team found that the proportions of Noah's Ark carefully balanced the conflicting demands of stability, comfort, and strength. In fact, the Ark has the same proportions as a modern cargo ship. The study also confirmed that the Ark could handle waves as high as 100 foot or 30 meters. It's incredible. And they, these guys who did this research, this Dr. Hong, he is not a Christian. Okay, he's not a Christian. These are secular scientists who basically were trying to prove it wrong in a sense. And they've proved it to be exactly proportioned correctly. Now, isn't it wonderful when the facts given to us in the Word of God hold up under modern science? Isn't that incredible? You know, the, the facts given to us in the Word of God hold up under modern secular science. But you know, it shouldn't surprise us. It's wonderful to see, but it shouldn't surprise us, should it? To learn that a vessel designed by God is perfectly balanced. We shouldn't be surprised by that, should we? Shouldn't be surprised. God designed this. No wonder it's perfectly balanced. No wonder it's perfectly proportioned. God knew what he was doing. Our God is a God of wisdom. And so God made sure that this vessel was perfectly proportioned to navigate safely the rough waters of the flood. You know, the design of the ark just highlights for us the wisdom of God, doesn't it? The wisdom of our creator. You know, the ark was indeed perfectly seaworthy and able to bear the judgment of God, protecting those within. You know, and in the seaworthiness of the ark, once again, we see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Christ is also a worthy vessel, isn't he? A worthy vessel, able to bear the judgment for mankind. He is the perfect worthy vessel to bear the judgment for us. No one else could have provided a way of salvation but the Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone is worthy. He and he alone is able to take the judgment of God upon himself so that we might be saved. And that's because of the fact that Christ is the perfect God-man, fully God, 
and yet fully man. You know, Philippians 2, let's just turn over there. I know we know these verses, but Philippians 2 speaks of this wonderful truth. Philippians 2. In Philippians 2 and verse 6, it says, Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Christ, fully God, left heaven's glory to become fully man. And because Christ is fully God and fully man, it means that Christ is able, able to pay the price for our sin. It means that Christ was sinless, the sinless substitute, able to bear the punishment for our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's just turn there, 2 Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians five and verse twenty one. <clears throat> Corinthians five verse twenty one it says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Christ who knew no sin, he's sinless, the perfect vessel. Christ was made sin for us, he took the punishment for us, he took the wrath of God upon himself, so that we might be saved. You see, Christ and Christ alone is a worthy vessel to provide a way of salvation. Just like the ark, it's a wonderful parallel. Okay, the ark was the perfect, seaworthy vessel. Christ is the perfect vessel to, pay, to bear the judgment for mankind. And then secondly, we see that the ark provided a covering. It provided the necessary covering. Go back with me to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14. Genesis 6 and verse 14 we read, <clears throat> Make thee an ark of gopher wood, rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. We've talked about the fact that it was a seaworthy vessel, perfectly proportioned to handle uh, the judgment of God poured out on earth. And now secondly here we see that the ark provided the necessary covering. In verse 14, <clears throat> excuse me, we read of the materials that were used in the building of the ark, the construction of the ark. Noah is told here to build the ark out of gopher wood. Now, we can't be sure exactly what gopher wood is. Uh, some have suggested that it might be talking about cedar, and others have suggested that it's talking about cypress. Uh, cypress is especially put forward because of the fact that it's resistant uh, to rot, apparently, and to being eaten by uh, bugs and worms and things like that. And cypress apparently also was common use uh, for building ships after the flood. Okay? This is what they used to build boats and the like after the flood. And so it seems a possibility that maybe gopher wood is cypress, that that's what we're talking about here. Uh, but the truth is we can only speculate. Okay? We don't know exactly what type of wood we're talking about here. But what we do know is that it must have been some type of dense hardwood that made it suitable for constructing a boat out of, okay, the ark out of. And then this gopher wood was overlaid, it says, with pitch. Okay, there in verse 14, make thee an ark of gopher wood, room shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. He's told to put pitch on top of the gopher wood, okay, on the inside and on the outside. And this pitch, of course, here is it's the idea of 
providing waterproofing, isn't it? Okay, he's waterproofing, he's protecting the wood, he's making it resistant to decay as well, and probably would have preserved the wood too, um, which is why you have sightings, none of them have been proven, but sightings of the ark today preserved in glacier uh, on, on the mountain there. Well, that's what they believe. And it's to do with this idea that it's covered in pitch. It would have preserved it. And the word translated pitch here is an interesting Hebrew word. And it's different from the word that's used in other places in the word of God. Okay? In other places referring to pitch, it's a different Hebrew word. For instance, in Exodus chapter 2, which we looked at this morning, let's just turn there. <clears throat> Exodus 2. Exodus 2 verse 3 it says, And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him <coughs> an ark of bulrushes and dabbed it with slime and with pitch and put the child therein and she laid in the flags by the river's brink. Now the word pitch here is different. Okay, this of course, as we said this morning, this is Moses being put into the, the ark made of bulrushes and put in the, uh, <coughs> in the water there to protect him. Okay. And the, the pitch that's used here, that word is a word talking about tar or asphalt. Okay, that's what the word is all right, in the Hebrew. And so it's the idea of waterproofing. It's the same idea, but it's a different Hebrew word. The word back in Genesis chapter 6, however, that's translated pitch, is a Hebrew word that basically means to cover. That's what the word means. It means to cover, and in the noun form, uh, the word basically means a covering. It's a covering. And this is interesting because it's this same Hebrew word that is then regularly translated throughout the word of God as atonement. Go to Leviticus chapter 17 with me. Leviticus 17. <clears throat> Leviticus 17 and verse 11. <clears throat> verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Okay, this is that same Hebrew word that's translated pitch. Okay, it's to cover, a covering. And it's translated atonement here. And we're talking about here the blood of the animals being shed to provide atonement or to provide a covering for the sins of the people. You know, And then on the Day of Atonement in particular, the the blood sacrifice was brought and the blood was collected and it was taken within the veil and sprinkled where? On the mercy seat. And it was sprinkled there to provide atonement for the sins of the people. Go back to Leviticus 16 and just read with me verse 15. <clears throat> Leviticus 16 verse 15 says, And he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness. Uh, verse 15, sorry, I read the wrong verse. Verse 15, then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it before upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat and he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions in all their sins and so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. In Genesis, uh, Leviticus 16, sorry, you've got the, the Day of Atonement. And the blood is collected, it's taken within the veil, and it's sprinkled upon the mercy seats. And it's put there to provide a covering for the sins of the people. In the Old Testament, 
uh, God's presence, the Shekinah glory, was there in the temple, the Holy of Holies, above the mercy seat. That's where God's presence was. And so the whole picture there is that as God then looked down at the mercy seat, God saw the blood. He saw the blood covering the sins of the people, and so God's wrath was appeased. Atonement was made. A covering was provided. And so it's interesting then that the very first use of that word is back here in Genesis chapter 6. This word atonement is used in connection with the ark. You see, this pitch that Noah was to put inside and outside of the ark was sufficient to provide a covering, atonement, okay? keeping the, the waters of God's wrath at bay, the waters of God's judgment at bay. You see, all those who entered into the ark were covered. They were covered. They were protected. Just as the blood of the Old Testament sacrifices provided a covering for the sins of the Israelites and protected them for the wrath of God, so Noah's ark provided a covering, atonement, from the wrath of God poured out upon the earth. And so there's this wonderful picture. And that picture, of course, then is carried over to the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? We've been talking about the ark being a picture of salvation and a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's seen again clearly here. You see, Christ is the perfect, sinless substitute. We said he's the perfect vessel, the perfect, worthy vessel. And he provided atonement, a covering for our sins. You know, without his shed blood, we, we cannot stand before God. Okay, without his shed blood, we stand before God without any protection at all from his holy wrath. We stand condemned without the blood of Christ. In 1 John 2, 2, we read that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Let's turn over there, 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. One John two two it says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation there speaks about Christ being the atoning sacrifice that satisfies God's righteous demands. You see, he has made atonement for our sins, so that we might be brought back into fellowship with God. It's his shed blood that provides that covering. In Romans 5 verse 11, it declares that through Christ we have received the atonement. Let's just read that, Romans 5. <clears throat> Romans 5, and, and we've been looking at that with Pastor David, Romans 5 and verse 11. It says, and not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now, the word atonement there is speaking about reconciliation, being brought back into fellowship with God. But again, that's only possible because of the blood covering our sins. That's the only reason we can enter back into fellowship with God. You see, Christ's shed blood provides a covering, blotting out our sins, restoring us to fellowship with God, protecting us from the righteous judgment of God. You see, just as the ark was a covering protecting Noah and his family from the wrath of God poured out upon the earth, so too when we call upon the Lord Jesus Christ, 
The precious blood of Christ protects us from the wrath of God poured out. Now, when God looks down upon us now as believers, God's wrath is appeased. In 1 John 1 verse 7, it says, The blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanseth us from all sin. It's His blood that provides the covering that we need to protect us from the wrath of God. So we might stand righteous before a holy God. And so we've talked about the fact that it was a seaworthy vessel. We've talked about the fact that it provided the necessary covering. And now thirdly and lastly this evening, we see that it was accepted by faith. It was accepted by faith. Let's just go back to Genesis chapter 6 and verse 22. Genesis 6 and verse 22, it says, Thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And the last thing that we see here, and indeed the last thing in the chapter here, is that Noah obeyed God. You see, this uh, ark had to be accepted by faith, didn't it? It had to be accepted by faith. God gave Noah the warning in verse 17. God warned him that this flood is coming, this, this destroying flood, this one that will wipe out all flesh. God warned him that he was going to do this. He then also gave Noah the instructions for the ark, this perfectly proportioned vessel, this vessel that would protect him and his family, those who entered in from the flood, from the judgments. But Noah still had to part the play, didn't he? Noah had to respond in faith. He had to believe the words of God and he had to obey the instructions of the Lord and build the ark as God said. You know, we need to remember here that Noah, he'd never seen rain before let alone seeing a flood. Noah had never seen rain before. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that. Let's just go back there. Genesis 2, verse 5. Genesis 2, verse 5, it says, And every plant of the field uh, before it was in the earth, and every uh, every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. As we saw in Genesis chapter 2, there's no rain upon the earth until now. There's, there's this great mist instead that goes up and this heavy dew that waters the plants. And so Noah has never seen rain before. He's never seen a flood. And so he has to accept the words of God here by faith, doesn't he? He has to accept the words of God. He has to accept God's declaration that it's going to rain, that water is going to fall from heaven. And the water is going to come out from the deep as well as we'll see in the next chapter. And it's going to flood the whole earth. He has to accept that by faith. He has to believe it to be true and he has to then act upon it, doesn't he? Now in the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews declares that Noah was warned of things not yet seen. Let's go over there. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 7. I think we looked at this verse last Sunday, but let's just read it. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 and verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. Noah was warned by God of things not yet seen. He'd never seen these things. He was warned by God, but he accepted it by faith. It says that he was moved with godly fear. 
believed the words and he built the ark that God instructed him to do. <clears throat> and this is what we read here in Genesis 6, verse 22, isn't it? Okay, it says there, uh, back in our passage, verse 22, it says, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Noah didn't deviate from God's plan. God had given him the instructions. God had told him what to do. And now Noah obeyed. He didn't change it. He didn't modify it or only do part of it. Noah obeyed God. He did everything God commanded him to do. You see, he demonstrated his faith by his obedience. Now, one commentator wrote this. He said, God had already made all the preparations. Still, Noah had to believe God's promise that he would deliver Noah and his family if he followed in obedience to God's plan. And that's the point here. Noah's part in all of this was to place his faith in God. Now, it took faith for him to build the ark as God intended, God instructed. But it also took faith for him to enter the ark once it was complete too, didn't it? Okay, when God said it's time to get on the ark, he had to obey in faith and enter in to be saved from God's wrath. You see, God made the plan, but Noah had to accept it by faith. And once again, there's a wonderful picture of Christ, isn't there? Because the same is true in the Lord Jesus Christ. His death there on the cross has provided the perfect covering for our sins. It's a sacrifice that, as we said this morning, is sufficient for all, but it must be accepted by faith. It must be entered into by faith. Now, we read the verse earlier, but 1 John 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He's the satisfaction for the sins of all mankind. But not all mankind are saved, are they? And the reason is, they have to enter in by faith. You see, we have a part to play. We must accept it by faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you are saved through faith. Acts 16, 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Faith is our part. You know, God's done it all. He's made all the preparations. He sent His Son as a perfect, worthy sacrifice to shed His blood, providing a perfect covering for our sins. But our part is to, as individuals, accept that gift of salvation by faith. Enter in by faith and be saved from the wrath to come. You know, both this morning and this evening, we've looked at the ark as a wonderful picture of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that the ark was sufficient in size to save all mankind, all who entered in. It was a seaworthy vessel, able to handle the waters of God's judgments. It provided atonement, a covering from the wrath of God, and it was accepted by faith. And likewise, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all. He is the perfect, sinless substitute, the perfect vessel. And His shed blood provides the perfect covering for our sin. And all we have to do is accept it by faith. Now I trust that today you know Christ as your Savior, that you have entered in by faith and you are saved by grace from the wrath of God, the the judgment to come. And if you're not saved, then why won't you accept Him tonight? Accept Him tonight before it is eternally too late. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank You once again for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for 
Genesis chapter 6 and the wonderful truths that we've seen both this morning and this evening. Lord, considering the ark and this wonderful picture of salvation through Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to this evening leave singing your praises and giving all glory to you. And Lord, I pray if there's anybody watching or here tonight who's not saved, that Lord, tonight they'd realize that there's only one way of salvation. And that is through Christ and Christ alone. Lord, may you work in their hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.